You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. Wednesday was World AIDS Day, and to coincide with that, the WHO released a new report on HIV/AIDS. We hear from the coordinator about where we are with the disease. The number of deaths has decreased from 2.2 million to 1.8 million, which is uh, one of the main outcome of these treatment programs. Also this week saw a report on men's health. Author Alan White explains that men don't receive the same level of attention as women. If you look and see what co- um, causes these deaths, you see um, a very rapid increase in ischemic heart disease over the age of 35-45. Uh, you see an increase in cancers, you see an increase in liver disease. But first, now that we're in the run-up to Christmas, it's time for us to reveal the BMJ charity. This year, it's Lifebox, who provide pulse oximeters to hospitals in lower-income countries. Atul Gawande explained just why these devices are so essential for safe surgery and what you can do to ensure that every operating theatre has one. We started the Lifebox campaign out of work that I had done uh, that started with the World Health Organization trying to understand how we reduce deaths in surgery on a global basis. The volume of surgery being done in the world has now exceeded the volume of childbirths, but with death rates 10 to 100 times higher. Our first strategy was to devise a checklist for surgical care that when we tested it in um, hospitals around the world, we found reduced the death rates and complication rates by more than a third when people used this simple two-minute checklist to improve teamwork and um, not missing key steps. But there was one thing on the checklist that actually cost money, and that was to have every patient have a pulse oximeter, an oxygen monitor, um, on their finger throughout an operation. Now that's become totally normal since the early 1980s in the developed world. But out of work we did in that program, we found that there were more than 77,000 operating rooms in middle-income and low-income countries, um, roughly about half, that did not use any oxygen monitoring. And um, it's been found to be the single most life-saving technology um, that surgical teams can use to save patients. We then started the charity, uh, Lifebox, out of an effort to um, help achieve safer surgery around the world by trying to make sure that we had the checklist moving into operating rooms, but also have the Lifebox, (laughs) uh, as we called it, a pulse oximeter in every operating room um, where surgery is being done. Part of the concept was that there aren't oxygen monitors routinely sold in other countries and when uh, low-income countries try to get this basic piece of equipment they're paying two thousand dollars and up for an operating room grade oximeter we wanted one that could function for a long time on battery power because power outages are not uncommon that um, was incredibly durable met all of the specifications that we consider essential for um, good quality uh, monitoring, but then would uh, be cheap. And we banded together low-income hospitals and then said we would guarantee that we would buy oxygen monitors for these hospitals. Uh, And we wanted to see if we could, almost as a market-based experiment, get manufacturers to be interested in the end eight 
manufacturer's bid. The winning bid was 250 US dollars, about 160 pounds, uh, $25 for a replacement probe. And in the last year, we've been able to distribute now more than 1,000 with partnerships with organizations like Smile Trains. My suspicion is that will take between five and 10 years. Um, we expect by the end of next year to reach about 5,000 operating rooms. We uh, believe we can ramp up over the next five to 10 years to be able to close that gap. Now there's a further component to it. Can we close the knowledge gap? Places like Latin America, Eastern Europe, um, we have well-trained clinicians who simply don't have the resources and just getting them the equipment is demonstrably making a substantial difference. Um, in some environments like Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Asia, you have uh, anesthetic officers who aren't uh, as well skilled in the safety measures that we would um, use in operating rooms. And so we've been deploying training as well. We trained the majority of anesthetic officers in Uganda this past year in how to use the monitor and then we're having follow-up with them six months later. So that process of teaching the skills, you know, that'll take a decade or so. Um, but it's broken the problem down into an achievable set of tasks that um, we, we're marching our way through if we have the resources to be able to make it possible. That the BMJ would choose this as their Christmas um, fund is just an extraordinary thing. We've been able to raise significant dollars from anesthesia societies, but the opportunity to raise much more funds that can close uh, this gap um, is an amazing, an amazing thing. The biggest reason that uh, we'd love people to donate is that it can make a difference um, with a relatively small amount of money. 160 pounds can put an oxygen monitor into an operating room that doesn't have them and it can reduce the risk for thousands of patients. You can save lives with this. And if that's inspired you to donate, you can do that on the charity's webpage. That's lifebox.com forward slash donations. Now, HIV and AIDS. A new report from the WHO this week reveals where we are with the disease. Earlier this week, I spoke with the coordinator of the report, Yves Soutron, to delve into its key messages. I'm joined by Dr. Yves Soutron, who is the coordinator of the Strategic Information and Planning Department of HIV-AIDS at the WHO and who coordinated this recent report. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Good morning. Um, the report highlights you know, successes of the programme, but the biggest success story seems to be the rollout of antiretroviral treatment in low- and middle-income countries. Um, so perhaps you could set out for us what's gone on there. Just to remind that uh, in 2003, when uh, WHO and UN AIDS have launched an initiative that was called 3x5, the plan was to put 3 million people on treatment before 2005. There was less than half a million people uh, on treatment in uh, low- and middle-income countries. And at the end of 2010, there were 6 million and 650,000 people, which is 17-fold increase in six years, which is probably one of the major success of any public health program in the world. And uh, you see that the ma main success is in the poorest part of the world, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, mm. 
where at the end of last year there was more than five million people on treatment when there was maybe one hundred thousand in two thousand and three. The reasons of this uh, of this success are, are multiple, and of course uh, funding, high level political commitments, capacity to uh, implement some. Uh, very specific approach which are very public health related that simplify the process of uh, uh, implementing treatment programs in countries has uh, been uh, some of the main reasons of, of the successes. But, because there is a but, even with uh, 6,650,000 people on treatment, it's less than half of the needs. Today we consider that more or less 47% people who are eligible to treatment have access to treatment. Uh, member state of UN has committed to have 15 million on t- people on treatment at the end of t- uh, 2015. And it means that commitments, fundings, innovation in program, innovation in science needs to not only to be continued, but also to be implemented to make sure that this will uh, happen in the next four years. Mm. There was this recent call by the Global Fund saying that, that countries are going to have to pay for part of this program themselves. Yeah, you know, with the financial crisis that uh, the world is facing now, we are facing a a major issue because for the first time since uh, many years, uh, the global funding for HIV AIDS, the global investment has decreased a little bit from 15.9 billion to 50 billion. It's a concerning issue because at the time we know that uh, treatment is, is working there is a decrease in the number of deaths from 2005 to, to 2010. Yeah. The number of deaths has decreased from 2.2 million to 1.8 million, which is uh, one of the main outcomes of these treatment programs. We have now more and more good science that shows that not only treatment is good for people, but it's also good for prevention. It's, it's a little bit uh, a pity to see that funding issues could create some obstacles to increase the gaps in uh, access to treatment and to achieve this uh, ambitious target that the world has uh, put. So just to pick up on that point mm. of uh, treatment decreasing transmission, there's big studies out there now that show that. Is that going to be a cornerstone of WHO policy? Um, is that maybe going to change the the focus? It's, it's a major uh, uh, new evidence, and SWHO is an evidence-based organization. Of course, uh, WHO takes these results very seriously. And we have recently, at the beginning of this month, a very important uh, international consultation with a key expert in the world uh, in the area of antiretrovirals because we want to adapt our guidance for the best use of antiretrovirals, which means for treatment, for preventing mother-to-child tr- transmission, but also for prevention. And the, the recent results of the uh, trial uh, HTPN 052 show that when uh, uh, treatment is uh, given to people in serodiscordant uh, couples, when very early treatment is given, the reduction of transmission is of 96%, which is absolutely incredible. Okay, great. A recent initiative looking at uh, antiretroviral therapy was Treatment 2.0, which was launched uh, by WHO and UNAIDS in 2010. Could you just tell us what that's about and and what the aim of that new initiative was? Well, the aim of the initiative is to make sure that the 15 million in 2015 will be achieved. And for for that, we need to have treatment who are simpler, cheaper and better. 
And for that, we have defined with UNAIDS a couple of main pillars for this Treatment 2.0 initiative. Uh, one of the pillars is to optimize the treatment uh, uh, regimens. So I mean that all the drugs are in one pills, for example, or in one syrup for, for the children. One of the key issues of the treatment program is the fact that a large proportion of people are loss of follow-up. People know that they are HIV positive, don't go to care. Oh. When they are on care, a loss, a, a loss of follow-up before being tested for eligibility to treatment. And when they are eligible uh, to treatment, a large number is loss of follow-up for initiating treatment. And we need to work on that. So point-of-care diagnostic, which means... People have not to move from one side to another one to be tested for uh, mm. biological uh, areas and then to, to go to another side to get the results. We need to make sure that people have everything at the same site. The third pillar is to make sure that the costs are the smallest as possible. And we have now good example, for example, of South Africa. We have a, a new tendering process for decreasing the cost of the drugs. And we need to support countries to make the best use of the possibility to, to use uh, generic drugs. And we are working on that. The fourth pillar is to uh, improve health service delivery to make service at the closest place possible from the people, it means decentralization, decentralization, decentralization. When there is decentralization and when healthcare workers, which are very close to the people, are taking the leading role, initiating and, and following the people, we have many examples who show that outcomes for people are, are better, less death, less loss of follow-up. And of course for that, and this is the fifth pillar, community involvement. We need to make sure that community can increase the demand of people for testing, but also we need to support communities to help people to take in an ongoing process uh, drugs and uh, be followed up as, as needed. Sure. I mean, this starts in 2010, so it's early days, but how is that program going at the moment? Some countries, especially c countries in the ASEAN region like Vietnam, Cambodia and other, are starting to implement some of the components of Treatment 2.0. But of course now we would like to implement it on a broader range, especially in the sub-Saharan African region. I mean, you brought up cost there and access to treatment. At the moment, there are first-line antiretrovirals that are, are widely available in patient pools so that... Um, you know, cost-effective yeah. access is able. But with the increasing treatment that's going on, people will eventually have to move on to second-line, maybe third-line treatments. How's that going, trying to get access to them for much larger population? Yes, this is one of the key questions. Only 2% of people who have access to treatment in low- and middle-income countries are on second-line regimens. 2% is very limited, there are some good reasons for that. Many programs have started recent period of time uh, and, and so people do, do, do not need to be on second-line regimens. But we can consider that the proportion of people in need of second-line is more important than uh, the 2%. There are many obstacles for that cost, of course. The, the most used second-line regimens in low- and middle-income countries, the, the median cost is uh, $454 per year. It's high if we compare to the most used uh, first-line regimen, which is uh, $121 last year. But there is other reason is, for example, the capacity of countries to uh, provide the good laboratory monitoring 
for these people. And sometimes people don't even know that they are in, in need of, of mm. a second line regimen. So there is a lot of work to do. The work which is developed by organizations like uh, Unitaid uh, has been critical to decrease the, the, the cost, but it's still too, too high. And of course, there are still some patent issues. Most of the second line regimens are newer uh, drugs still under patent. We need also to work for countries to be, to be able to have, have uh, access to these drugs at a lower cost. So can the bottom line of this report is things have improved, but we've still got a way to go before... Uh... Exactly. Things uh, have improved and we're focused on treatment, but it, it is the same for prevention of mother to child transmission. Most eligible people have not yet access to treatment. Too many people are not even aware of the HIV status and uh, the financial crisis is uh, one of the major issues that we have to face. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Sussuan, thank you very much for talking to us today. And finally this week, men's health. It's been 10 years since the BMJ had their men's health special. And to talk about where we are now, I'm joined by Alan White, a professor of men's health at Leeds Metropolitan University. Hi, Alan. Hello. So could you sketch out for us uh, where we are today? We've, we've come a long way. There is no doubt that uh, the last 10 years has seen an exponential growth in the amount of activity around men's health. A lot of it has been at the practitioner level, which is very reassuring. Mm. Practitioners have been going out into the communities because they've realised that they've been sat in their clinics and they haven't seen as many men as they perhaps would like to. Um, at the European level, who uh, um, commissioned the report, We've seen a change. They'd had reports on women's health previously, and they'd not long before they commissioned our report asked for another one on women's health. So it was time that we looked seriously to get a baseline of, of what was happening with men across Europe. Sure. And as you say, um, you have this report on men's health. What are some of the patterns that are coming out of that? One of the most striking patterns is the high rate of premature death. Uh, 630,000 men die between the age of 15 and 64 compared to about 300,000 women. What we really need to be doing is is looking seriously at, at what's happening with men and their health so that we can keep young men fit and healthy, not only for uh, the, the moral responsibility we have to look after our population, but also because families, societies need those young men the economy needs those young men, and we want those young men to be able to help support the older population. But we also need those young men to be able to go into older age in as fit and as able a condition as possible to reduce the burden of chronic ill health. So why are these, these younger men dying? If you look and see what co um, causes these deaths, you see um, a very rapid increase in ischemic heart disease over the age of 35, 45. Uh, you see an increase in cancers. You see an increase in liver disease. You, you have got the high rate of accidents, um, transport accidents. You've got the suicide. But a lot of those conditions are lifestyle associated. You see the smoking. You see the alcohol. You see the quick reduction in physical activity from being active youngsters to inactive sedentary workers. You see big jumps in the uh, number of men overweight between the age of 15 and 24 and 25 and 34. If you think that men tend to put their weight on around their middle, the abdominal visceral fat increases the risk of the metabolic syndrome, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes. 
then you've got the fat-related cancers. If you add on top of that the social determinants of health, and you're seeing now the, the changing patterns in work, uh, the fact that a lot of men are not coming out of the educational system as they should, there not as many are going into higher education, uh, the patterns of offending and offender health, which is very negative. You look at migrant men. A lot of the early migrants are men trying to engage within a, a workplace um, that may or may not be conducive towards their health. You've also got to think of the uh, social housing, the places where men work. And then you have to add on top of that male patterns of health usage, their knowledge of their own health. If, just for instance, uh, you are a, um, a person in a vulnerable job working from 8 in the morning till 6 at night, and if you are not on that van, you don't get paid, and if you're not on that van, you may not have a place on that van the next day, then having access to health care becomes problematic as well. I understand that there's been a few ways in which this is trying to be tackled around Europe. So perhaps you could sketch some of those for us. We see it in workplaces like the Royal Mail that invested something like £46 million into uh, health initiatives and they got £287 million worth of benefit at the other end of it. And it wasn't just the factor that they became less ill and had less time off sick, but it was also because they felt more in, the company was more engaged with them. BT introduced WorkFit, using the computer as a way, the internet as a way of, of um, getting information to the men when they were sat at the desks. They had something like 17,000 of their workforce engage with that program, and a significant proportion of them lost weight. It's about thinking about men or where are they what can we do for them rather than blaming them if you are waiting in your weight loss group in the community at three o'clock in the afternoon saying look there's no men again you've got to be thinking well where are the men why are they not coming and how can i possibly get them here or how can i get to them the programs that you've talked about there royal mail um bt Obviously, they were effective in accessing men, getting them to sort of mm. engage with this. But they're very small schemes in, the, in terms of the whole of Europe. I mean, it's going to take more than just some companies to, to really get a hold of this. You're absolutely right. And this is why we're saying that health strategy needs to start to take account of men and their health. I mean, you're seeing in some countries, Denmark is a great example, they're out there doing all sorts of different initiatives. They're trying things out. We don't know. We don't know what works. We've never been able to get the funding from the European Commission. This is great. We've got the funding for the report. But we've never had the program grants. The, the Royal Colleges have never thought, oh, we'll put a program grant together to really explore what works with men. They still tend to think of the population-level initiatives or they, they look at some of the embryonic work that is taking place and think, oh, we can't fund that because it's not a randomised controlled trial. A lot of the stuff that's being tried at the moment is interested and enthusiastic practitioners thinking, well, let's see if this will work. Now, I know that that's not a good, a good point for commissioners mm. to commission new services, but if they hadn't done that, we wouldn't have anything. So where forward from here? Do you think it's a case of doing the research to really look at these things that you've talked about, 
Or do you think we should be more practical and go down these routes like in Denmark where we're trying different things to... We, we have to have a, a spectrum of activity. That need for an assessment of actually what is out there, is it being used? Um, community needs-based analysis using the gendered lens to see, well, are men using these services? Are they not? How could they be improved? So that's a very local task that could be done anywhere in the uh, country. But then you've got to come up back another level to think about, well, how strategically are we um, tackling men's health? Is it seen as a relevant and important issue? Our argument is strongly yes, it is, it is an issue. And then you've got to be thinking at national level in terms of, well, what policies do we have? What, what techniques, what mechanisms could be done to enhance men's uptake? How are we tackling that from a gendered perspective? The gendering of health strategy, the looking at health strategy from the point of view of men and the point of view of women helps both. We don't have to be thinking of the one-size-fits-all. Let's get some more nuanced care out there. Social marketing is all predicated on getting the right message to the right person in the right form at the right time. If it's easier for a message to be in one form for a man and one form for a woman, should we not consider it? And I know that there will be people saying, that is just stupid and I can read whatever a man's got and I can read whatever a woman's got. It's, it's beyond that. We're not wanting to pander to stereotypes. But we are recognising there are specific areas where it does help. And if it helps and it stops some of the problems, then let's try it. Let's do some research, trial it, and if it works, my goodness, it might, might be beneficial. Alan White... Thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. That's all for this week. Next week, the Hungarian health minister explains what the NHS should learn from his country's health system. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.